From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Rob Fane for Jill. Good afternoon. Hope you're doing well wherever I find you. Lots to talk about today, including the Prime Minister's uh, intelligence suggesting that India is, in fact, behind the slain of uh, a Sikh leader in British Columbia. We'll talk about that in about 15 minutes' time. But first, another big story. This one a little more local. BC moving to increase their housing supply and deliver more homes faster. To talk about that, the CEO of Landlord BC, David Hutniak, kind enough to join me. David, good afternoon. Yeah, hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. So this is something that I think will, you know, on paper, bring a little bit of reprieve to uh, a housing situation that is in dire need of some progress. Can you walk me through what you thought today's decision represented? Yeah, I mean, secondary suites are really important, uh, an important source of long-term rental housing in British Columbia. And so uh, I think, you know, the province is looking at sort of a, a multifaceted approach here to try and generate supply. And I think, you know, this program is obviously not going to solve the problem, um, but, uh, you know, uh, hopefully they'll uh, hit their 3,000 unit target and every unit helps. So from that perspective, uh, I think it uh, represents a positive. David, one of the things that I've learned in my time as a homeowner is that a lot of times the permitting process is sometimes the most arduous of everything. I'm hoping, because it was actually their first action that they uh, announced today, I'm hoping that that's true and maybe that they could even try to find a way to streamline that and not have eight different ministries all with their finger in the cookie jar. Yeah, I mean, I think the important thing to note here is that this is uh, streamlining, streamlining, pardon me, at the provincial level. So this is not at the municipal level, which is where I think uh, most of the problems that you're alluding to actually uh, lie. Um, but, you know, in terms of... Uh, you know, what they're trying to do uh, to address the entire permitting process. Uh, definitely good to see the province has sort of stepped up to the table and said, okay, we know we're part of the problem. Um, uh, you know, here's here's what we're going to do. So, so we certainly applaud them for that. But uh, again, just to reiterate, the, the, the bigger issue and, and the one that's tougher to tackle is that uh, at the municipal level. I want to get into this uh, announcement a little more from the province before we get into the municipalities. One of the things that I found interesting was this incentive program. It's a pilot project called the Secondary Suite Incentive Program set to launch early next year. And I think this will raise some eyebrows of intrigue because it's set to provide approximately 3,000 homeowners with forgivable loans of up to $40,000 to create those secondary suites or accessory dwelling units on their property. Yeah, I mean, again, I think that's I'm not going to solve the problem. Uh, we need, I think CMAC said by 2030, we need uh, 610,000 units of housing. And a, a lot of that needs to be rental. But nevertheless, every unit helps. Uh, in the context of this specific program, um, you know, there's it's very prescriptive. Um, I'm not sure how closely you looked at the announcement, but, you know, one of the red flags for us was the fact that uh, the landlord uh, will be required to maintain the units below market uh, rent for five years. Now, we don't have the specifics on on what below market rent uh, means. Um, But, you know, again, I think it's, uh, it's good to see that the province is trying to, you know, look at multiple ways to influence supply. Certainly to build new purpose-built rental, the apartment buildings, that's, that unfortunately remains a long and expensive process. 
and uh, particularly challenging right now with high interest rates, etc. So, uh, you know, this initiative, if we get uh, sort of, you know, enough uptake from it, I, uh, you know, those uh, units can be built, uh, secondary suites can be built pretty quickly, you know, in a matter of months as opposed to years. And so, you know, it's all good. And, and the thing is, it's province-wide. So I, I think this could be particularly effective in, uh, you know, in the, in the regional, uh, um, broader regional areas, uh, you know, in the, in the smaller markets, et cetera, which desperately need uh, rental housing. Well, I want to talk about this a bit, David, because, and again, maybe I'm just reading into just the tone overall here, is a couple of times you said, well, this is a great first step. I would assume that, you know, your your organization, Landlord BC, has just been weathered with countless people coming to you with frustrations and challenges. Maybe you could speak to those people's challenges and frustrations and just tell us all, all the listeners out there, great first step, but what is the finish line? What does the finished product look like in your eyes? Well, it's all little of government, first of all, and, and um, you know, certainly we saw a really good move by the uh, federal government last week with the elimination of GST on, on new purpose-built rental construction. That was a huge, huge uh, move on their part, something that our organization was advocating for back since 2015 when uh, Prime Minister Trudeau said that, uh, you know, he was going to address the issue. So so that's that's going to be hugely helpful, particularly in this high interest rate environment. In terms of sort of the broader, uh, you know, rental universe and, and maybe to speak to the secondary market, um, market mom-and-pop type landlords in particular, uh, since that's an important part of of today's announcement. I think, you know, legislatively, there remain challenges, um, you know, uh, particularly access to justice to the residential tenancy branch. Uh, The government has, you know, uh, put uh, over the next three years, I think it's 15 plus million dollars to try and uh, update the bureaucracy there. But, you know, we're still... Uh, nowhere near having that resolved. And it's, you know, I know a lot of people are working really hard to try and fix that, but that's still an issue. And then, you know, at the end of the day, and it was really interesting, not fairly recently, the Vancouver Sun, I guess, had a piece noting that over a third of British Columbians have space that could be rented out, but don't because they fear problem tenants and view the Residential Tenancy Act as unbalanced and favoring tenants. Now, that's a rather, you know, concerning sort of perspective. And, and those are the folks that, you know, in theory would be uh, targeted for for this, this uh, initiative. So, uh, you know, the government, uh, the province needs to continue to be sensitive to, to those issues. That's certainly something that our organization is constantly advocating for. And, you know, I mean, most recently... Uh, you know, we had rent increase freezes and 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 caps, et cetera. And again, that's something that we've we've uh, you know advocated uh, for for change on that part. And the province, you know, certainly has indicated that they realize they need to get back to CPI, which is the formula uh, increase and in, under the act. But uh, you know, it's just um, there's just so many things that uh, that uh, you know pressure points, I guess, on on this housing file. And uh, certainly, you know, we're we're trying to collaborate as much as possible with the government, but they need to be sensitive to the fact that, uh, you know, we need a legislative environment that's conducive to operating and building uh, uh, rental housing here. Uh, we have advocates out there who are asking for more regressive rent rent controls. 
it's just really quite quite concerning. Uh, the reality is that you know, some of what they're uh, suggesting would basically ensure that uh, no rental gets built in the province, and, and I just fail to understand how that would, would help renters, both current and mm-hmm. future. So interesting, interesting times. Yeah, it's a great point to finish on. David, thank you for this. We'll continue to shine light on it, and thank you for your advocacy, and uh, hopefully we'll see this go off the ground and uh, maybe even get to phase two down the road. Absolutely. Take care. Rob Fain for Jill, 1 o'clock hour. Glad to have you along for the ride. We've got a lot to get to today. Uh, Justin Trudeau making a pretty significant announcement today uh, in in Ottawa that I think uh, is of note here to many British Columbians. So we'll touch on that before the hour is done. And also, not long from now, we will be touching on the fact that uh, SFU's football program should have played this week, and they didn't. And we'll talk about a decision in Ontario that might eventually have a trickle-down effect here in British Columbia, affecting the sex workers in that province back east. But first, BC prohibiting illegal drugs from playgrounds and spray, wading pools, skate parks, you name it. If there's a park, there is now a 15-meter radius in which you cannot take drugs, illegal drugs, that is. Guy Felicella, harm reduction and recovery advocate, a fine friend of the show, kind enough to join us today. Guy, good afternoon. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get into this because I'd really like to get it from somebody who's got boots on the ground. We see right now that the province has come forward. They get the approval from the feds to prohibit the possession of illegal drugs. And and then they say playgrounds, wading pools, skate parks. I know that that goes into effect today. But what does that actually mean? What does the 15 meters mean to you? I guess it's like, you know, uh, if somebody is using in the facility 15 meters, I think it's like a half of a basketball court size. Um, you have to, you know, be away from kids. But, but also to note, listen, like drug users don't want to use in front of kids. And I, I mean, I don't see them traveling to water parks uh, to go use, you know, substances. Does it happen? Uh, I'm not saying that it doesn't. Uh, however, you have to look at the municipalities especially in some communities that don't have the proper health services um, to support people who are using these substances, such as, you know, overdose prevention sites where um, people can have a place to go and use. Uh, You can't just expect people to travel into the downtown east side, let's say from, you know, Coquitlam or, or other municipalities, Port Moody, Maple Ridge, to go and use their substances. That's not going to happen. And so it's really targeting a lot of people who don't have housing or a home to use these substances. And unfortunately, without the proper services in place in those communities, people will use alone, and we could see an increase of overdose uh, in our outside our in in the communities, but outside. Guy, correct me if I'm wrong in this. I worked in communications for a while, and I felt like this one was almost, um, it, it paints the illegal use of drugs in a really interesting light. I mean, they use all places that have kids, like playgrounds and wading pools and skate parks. Um, I, I mean, obviously, drug use is rampant everywhere in certain jurisdictions and in certain neighborhoods, for example. But it just felt like this one painted users in a really uh, tough-to-absorb light. Yeah, for sure. Like I said, you know, they, it's not like people want to use them in, in front of kids. Uh, and, and, you know, in most circumstances, they don't, you know. And uh, if, if you look at the downtown east side of Vancouver, kids are walking down the street. You can hear people yelling, you know, kids on the block, which is a code, a street code of put your stuff away. Uh, don't use your substances in front of these kids and, and watch your language. Uh, that still exists today. And I, I mean, you know, 
the reality is, is that, uh, you know, it's stigmatizing and criminalizing again, you know, our most vulnerable people in the community. If you have a house and you're using substances inside, nobody cares. But if you don't have a home and you're using outside, people care. Well, then people should be advocating for those proper services, such as supervised consumption sites in all municipalities. And then the police can say if they go up to somebody seeing them using outside, hey, listen, if you use outside, we'll take your stuff. Here's the facility for you to go to to use your substances. Go there and we won't bother you. Otherwise, now what happens when the police move, pull over and say, hey, you can't use here, but then where can I go? Or go in the back alley and use alone. This is going to increase overdoses, which is really unfortunate. Oh, that's an interesting thought process in the fact that it could actually, you know, increase. My question to you based on that and that alone right now is decriminalization seems like now it's getting some real pushback and they're starting to get some traction. Is that really the problem? No, decriminalization is actually working because it removes the it doesn't punish punish people who struggle with an addiction or a health condition. Sure. If you look again, it's not the problem isn't decriminalization. The problem is is not having the proper services in place to support people um, for their health condition. And so, you know, we have to do better at investing in those services, access to detox, access to OPS, access to treatment, access to housing. These are all the failures. So it's easy to point fingers at decriminalization and say it's not working. Look what it's doing. Well, no, it is working because the person who's using these substances isn't being punished for using drugs. Um, but if they are doing other crimes, uh, they will be punished by the law. So drug using is not, you know, a punishable offense uh, in itself. Uh, so we just have to do better in all our communities. And Guy, final question for you on this topic. Um, do you see the police enforcing this 15 meters? I mean, everybody tongue-in-cheek says, oh, well, then I guess they'll just do it 16 meters away. But do you see the cops saying, oh, you know, maybe in the one-off they see somebody blatantly doing it, they'll obviously go up and address it. But do you see this being something that's really going to move the needle? Yeah, not, I mean, not really. I mean, if you look at it, too, when people, just same thing with jaywalking. I mean, do they pull everybody over that jaywalks? I mean, you know, like... I'm sure if it's something where uh, it's a complaint process where, you know, somebody's causing a disturbance while using substances, then I'm sure the police are going to, you know, do their job. Um, but otherwise, I, I mean, I, don't, I, I mean, I just hope that it doesn't come cracking down on the heavy enforcement on people that have no place to go. Uh, so you have to look at the, the services that we have to have in those facilities so that we can encourage people to use there. This will definitely reduce uh, the amount of public consumption, but, you know, I don't think it's going to make much difference because I honestly don't believe that it's happening in, you know, uh, water parks or uh, beaches or, you know, some playgrounds, sure, or parks, people use that because, you know, um, there is nowhere to go. So um, I don't know how much it's going to make a difference, but, uh, you know, we just have to do a better job at getting the services the people who are struggling. It's an interesting thought, and uh, obviously this starts today, so we'll see how it takes effect and uh, how it uh, benefits everybody in the neighborhoods. I thank you for this, Guy. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. 
seven minutes after two o'clock on a wonderful Monday afternoon here in Vancouver. I hope wherever you are, I find you well. Well, it was one of the first things that we talked about as soon as we fired up the show right at 12 noon, the demise of Mike Babcock. And uh, I guess, as Bruce Arthur would put it so wonderfully, a sea of change potentially in hockey. Kind enough to be joined by the Toronto Star columnist, Bruce Arthur. Good afternoon, Bruce. How are you doing? I'm okay. You know, this is uh, such an interesting time for hockey. And I guess what I'll do with you, Bruce, is start right at the beginning in the hiring of Mike Babcock to begin. This is John Davis, a seasoned vet uh, of the hockey world. How do you feel? Would there have been enough discussion before Mike actually got his teeth into the Blue Jackets? Like, hey, let's just ease our way into this position. Well, it's interesting, actually, because at the press conference today that the Columbus leadership uh, held, GM was asked whether they had actually done enough work before they hired Mike Babcock. And the way he described the process, he said, we talked to a ton of people in hockey. We talked to uh, a lot of people who had worked with Mike. I guess our solution going forward is we'll need to do more of that if we want to avoid this kind of mistake in the future. And that struck me because the thing with Mike Babcock is, I mean, he is, to a, a, a heart, like up until about three years ago, he was the coach in hockey. Two gold medals with the Canadian Olympic team, another gold medal at the World Cup of Hockey in 2016 at Stanley Cup in Detroit, highest paid coach in the league with Toronto until he was fired in 2019. Um, he was really atop the world. But some of the stuff that's come out about Mike since then uh, has, uh, there was a lot of people who in real time, when Columbus hired Mike Babcock this summer, said, is this going to work? Has he changed his ways? The way he's treated some players, including young players, is a huge red flag. And what did we see in this investigation? It wasn't the veterans in Columbus who were really disturbed by how Mike Babcock treated them in terms of asking for photos from their phones. It was the younger players. And that kind of shows you that Mike Babcock didn't really learn from what happened in Toronto. And Columbus probably should have learned instead. So I'm trying to, you know, I, I always want to do this from both sides. I'm trying to think of the psyche of Mike Babcock. Is this Mike trying to assert himself, or did he genuinely, in his mind, think that he wasn't doing anything wrong? Like, there's one thing to say, hey, right now, open up your phone. I want to see everything you got on there. It's another mm-hmm. thing to phrase it where it's like, hey, man, let me see a little bit of your family. Do you, do you feel that this was truly him not learning his ways, or maybe the players just caught off guard that somebody actually wanted them to, you know, unlock their phone and look at the photos? Well, I mean, so one thing, I, I, I used a quote from Jake Muzzin, a veteran defenseman who had played, he won cups with the Los Angeles Kings. He was playing for the Leafs in 2019. And after Babs was fired, I asked him about kind of how Mike related to younger players on the team. And Muzzin went on a really long and thoughtful kind of response where he said, like, players today are different. They don't react the way that hockey players used to. Hockey players used to just take what was basically mental and occasionally physical torture from their coaches. Like, if you go, and back, go back and look at Scotty Bowman, who's the winningest coach in NHL history, he was an absolute tyrant, both in terms of how he treated his players emotionally and physically. Um, now, Mike was an old-school coach. And so one thing that Jake said, and Jake Muzzin said at the time, is it's more about building relationships now. Now, Mike Babcock, I think, knew that. He used to do this in Toronto, asks to see pictures of people's families. That, if you think about it, is a good way to try to understand another person. But there was an interesting quote from Frankie Carrada, who was briefly the defenseman of the league. He's now a TSN analyst. And he said, his experience playing for Mike Babcock, he didn't care about your family. He didn't care about who, who, like, who you, where you came from, really. 
unless you were really of use to him. And I think the problem with trying to manage a team like this, it sounds like Babcock didn't change this and wasn't aware enough that he could read the room that there were guys who were really uncomfortable with this. Again, I think it was Elliot Friedman of Sportsnet who reported that one of the problems of this investigation that it raised was a meeting away from the Blue Jackets uh, facility in which Babcock was looking through a player's phone for several minutes. Like, I, I don't know a lot of people who would hand me their phone, much less a young professional athlete, and say, go ahead and look, right? Mm-hmm. Because it, it is a personal thing. Like, we got a lot of personal photos. Most of my pictures are pictures of my kids, and I'd be fine with you looking at it. But a lot of people don't find that. And so that's, that's again, that's Mike Babcock not understanding the people he's coaching. And it created, it sounds like, a gap in trust in that locker room that was impossible to bridge. Bruce Arthur with the Toronto Star joining us here on CKNW. Bruce, you've been around athletes for a long time. There's been obviously trust that's been placed in you. Um, To see Paul Bissonnette, who, of course, is with Spitting Chicklets, which is a very divisive podcast to some, Mm -hmm. to have him come forward with an anonymous tip and and do it in the way that he did, saying that he was representing the players and have the voice, um, does... Is this a step forward for the world of podcasting? Is it a step forward for Paul Bissonnette as a credible uh, source? I mean, what do you think comes of the fact that this came from the world of the podcast and within five days we see such a a plate tectonic shift within an NHL circle? I have a lot of thoughts about that. Like someone tweeted that Paul Bissonnette is not the most powerful man in hockey, and that's a bit of a stretch. But the power that that podcast got from this in terms of reporting what players we're saying about a very powerful coach and that coach getting fired because of it was truly significant. One thing that Bissonette uh, tweeted afterwards was we're a player's podcast. You mess with the players. You're blanked basically. Right mm-hmm. now I've had, I've had a lot of kind of dealings with Paul over the years on a number of different subjects. And I found that, yeah, there's a, there, that podcast and specifically, which works with the Barstool company, which I have a lot of problems with it tends towards what you might call toxic masculinity, and it tends towards some, like an attitude, which I don't think is necessarily a healthy one always for hockey. That said, I have found Paul to be someone who really does listen, who's capable of, of really listening and changing his mind on subjects like this. My hope is that, like, if you, if you, you can hand too much, play, too much power to the players, You can, and you can hand too much power to this particular podcast. You could. The thing is that hockey, and this is why it's a change, hockey for decades has been so tilted towards the people in charge of hockey and against the people who play it that this is the beginning, I think, of a redress in that order. Like, the union has been a tame creature most of the time for the last 50 years in hockey. Players have been treated really not terribly well by the sport for a really long time. Uh, this is the players exerting power in a new and interesting way. And the, Mike Babcock's not going to coach probably again in the NHL because of it. That, to me, is the really significant part. For Paul, I just hope this doesn't go to his head a little too much. And again, I hope he really <laughs> thinks about what is a healthy culture for hockey. If I think right now what he's probably looking at is, I'm going to represent the interest of the players. Again, given the history of hockey, it's probably not a bad thing. Bruce, tremendous insight, and thank you. I know you're a very busy guy today, so thank you for the time this afternoon here in Vancouver, and let's do this again. Always a pleasure to talk to radio stations that I grew up to in my hometown. 
Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.